Welcome to Why Am I Losing It, presented by Bosley MD. In today's podcast, Colleen Kemp and J.B. Shelton interview Dr. David Deutsch. Dr. Deutsch started his training in hair restoration under the guidance of Dr. Bosley in 2004 and has since completed over 7,000 hair transplant procedures. Patients travel from all over the country and the world to have Dr. Deutsch perform their hair restoration. Among his many patients are members of royalty, movie and television actors, musicians, athletes, and corporate CEOs. Today he discusses surgical solutions to hair loss for both men and women. Bosley MD is proud to sponsor this podcast in the hopes that it will not only be of great value to salon owners, hairdressers, and barbers, but also to the men and women who struggle with hair loss. And now, here are Colleen Kemp and J.B. Shelton as they welcome Dr. David Deutsch. Welcome to our podcast, Why Are We Losing It? J.B., so good to see you again. So hello, I know hello. We have- Hello. <laughs> I know we've got like so many questions that are coming in and this podcast has been extremely helpful to a lot of men and women out there that don't quite know where to go when it comes to um, solutions for hair loss. So we always think Bosley, our sponsor of Why Am I Losing It? And this has helped a lot of people uh, find what channels they need to go to, learn how to grow healthy hair, or maybe in some cases, even um, look at having a transplant or seeing a doctor or physician or a surgeon. So it's uh, definitely been a popular podcast. Yes, it's absolutely informed and educated me tremendously. And it does help me um, with my guests in the chair. Now I have more information beyond what my own solutions that I have available in the salon are. So yeah, and then I'm kind of a a hair geek. So I like to learn all about the inner workings, if you will, of the scalp and the follicle. I know I found it. Some people find it terribly boring, but I'm terribly interested, actually. I am too. And I'm so interested in the science behind it. And you said it well. I'm a hair geek too, but I'm a Mm -hmm. science geek. I love this kind of stuff. So which even makes it more exciting for our next guest because he's actually out of the Bosley Medical Center out of Beverly Hills. So uh, Dr. Deutsch, thank you so much for joining us. And we're so happy that you could spend a little bit of time with us and, and share with us some of the science behind hair loss. So please tell us, why are we losing it? Why are we losing our hair? Well, first of all, it's my pleasure to join you. And thank you so much for having me today. Well, why are we losing our hair? Well, so about 50% of men by the age of 30 are going to be losing their hair. And with women, it's a little bit lower number, but still significant percentage. The majority of hair loss is based on genetics and hormones. So we call it androgenetic alopecia for the most part. Androgen meaning hormones or male hormones, which women have as well. And genetic meaning genes or heredity. So the vast majority of what we see is hair loss based on, uh, as I said, genetics and hormones, as well as inflammation is becoming more of an important component of hair loss. And that's something that we've been recognizing more and more in recent years. That's staggering numbers. What was that with men? How many men are going to... About half half of men will will have some form of hair loss. 
yeah. or more. That, that is a staggering number. Yeah. Touching base on that inflammation that you're starting to see, because we hear more and more about other things that happen. It's from our diet, isn't it, Dr. Deutsch? I mean, just the convenient of, quote unquote, crappy food. Yeah, I mean, crappy food might have something to do with it. There's lots of different foci of inflammation in, in our lives in 2020. You know, there's a lot going on. Diet can be one factor, stress from the environment, environmental factors. We see a lot of components in the foods, additives, stresses can be a trigger, cigarette smoking, just different inflammatory factors that are uh, in the environment and also indigenous to the body that can, can also uh, contribute to hair loss. We're definitely identifying that more and more. You ever have somebody come in that has had maybe a very strict diet and they've lost a whole bunch of weight and they lost their hair and they're thinking now they need a transplant and you have to have them wait a little bit to see if that hair comes back. Do you ever see diet affect hair loss yeah. at that drastic a level? So that's a good question because prior to doing this, I used to do heart surgery and for a very short period of time, I did gastric bypass. And with gastric bypass, you have very rapid, severe, significant weight loss. And so you have kind of a protein malnutrition state there for a while. And hair is very dependent upon the proper caloric and protein intake. So you do see that it's called an effluvium, which is transitional loss of hair. So there can be a lot of shedding and typically that hair will come back, but it could take six to 12 months. So if we do identify patients that come in that look like they fit that particular category of hair loss, we steer them towards adjuncts like Propecian, Rogaine and things to maintain hair, as well as just giving the body time to recoup its uh, losses and um, reset its uh, homeostasis and metabolism. So yeah, patients in that particular category, we don't usually do a transplant on quickly, but that's a very, very small percentage of what we see. Mm -hmm. As I said, the vast majority of people that we see coming through the office are those folks, both men and women that are suffering from this genetic and uh, uh, hormonal type of hair loss. There are some other causes, medical induced causes like thyroid disease, either hyper or hypo, like you said, significant weight loss with protein malnutrition, polycystic ovarian syndrome is mm. another one in, in women, mm -hmm. severe uh, anemia is another one, and certain autoimmune uh, afflictions like lupus and alopecia areata. Those are all things. But again, those comprise or compose a very small percentage of the patients that we typically see. Doctor, how did you get into the hair loss category? Because you said you were a heart surgeon to begin with, and then you did some gastric bypass. So how did you get into hair surgery? What was interesting about that that made you uh, go to this category? So long story short, cardiothoracic surgery or heart surgery is, is very, very demanding, uh, requires a lot of hours. I had young kids at the time. I wasn't getting to spend enough time in the family. So I was starting to think about other things. There've been a lot of changes in the field of medicine escalating liabilities in the, in the work that we're doing and decreasing reimbursements from the insurance companies. And plus, in my field, the cardiologists were really cutting into a lot of our surgery with their angioplasty and stenting. So I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall as far as what was going to be happening in the next few years. So I was thinking about other things that I might be able to do within the field of, of surgery. And Oddly enough, my wife had mentioned to me that a friend of hers that had a hair transplant done back in New York, and the procedure was done by a doc who was a vascular surgeon. There's no insurance involved. And I started thinking, yeah, that might be an interesting thing to check. I didn't know anything about it. 
And the more I looked into it, the more it made sense, the more I got excited about it. And uh, long story short, I've been doing that for the last almost 16 years. Well, I would think being a heart surgeon dealing with, you know, vascular, like you said, veins and capillaries, follicles are also very tiny little, you know, inside the body. And so I think you would have, with your experience, you'd be able to handle this kind of transition from the heart to the scalp. Absolutely. It's a different skill set and it's a completely different patient situation you're working on, you know, with the heart surgery, not, not to be cliche, but a lot, you know, it can be life and death. This is not obviously, but it is, it can be life-changing for sure. I've had many more compliments and many more uh, grateful patients doing this than I did when I was doing heart surgery. It takes practice, as I said, a skill set to it. You need to know what you're doing. There's artistry and there's manual dexterity involves are a lot of working parts to this. Seems like there'd be an artistry element to that, mm-hmm. that you would need to have a, a finesse for that type of thing. I just think about my little bitty hairdresser brain. I'm thinking how important if you don't get the hairline right with color and that's all they see. So definitely yes. a little bit of an artistry, you know, to that. So yeah. I would think you would have to, you know, enjoy uh, doing that in order for that mm-hmm. to be rewarding as Absolutely. you speak to. No question. As you said, it's one of the presenting things when you look at somebody, you know, you can see somebody's eyes or their nose or their mouth and the hairline is extremely important. The eyes always glance up towards the hairline. So it's really, really important when you have people that still have pretty much an intact hairline and you're adding behind that, you know, that's a little bit more straightforward. You're sort of filling in the gaps there. But when you have people that come in where they've completely lost the hairline, that's really where the artistry takes over because that's the hairline that they're going to have. And you, you want to compose it in such a way that it looks natural. We want it to be durable. Also, meaning for the younger people that come in, you know, say somebody comes in in their 20s, you want it to look good for them in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. So you have to project ahead to, to think about how things may change if they continue to lose hair. Because it's not like getting a haircut. If you get a bad haircut, you let your hair grow out again, and then you get another haircut or your style. Right. These hairlines and hairs are permanent. So you don't want to have something that's permanent and have it too low or too wide because it's not going to change as you age. There's a lot that goes into it. Well, I can imagine. So I'm going to bring up, uh, it's, this is a non-political statement, but, you know, our our president of the United States, you know, his hairline has come into question a time or two in his style. And there's, I don't know, there's an urban legend about that he himself received this hair transplant and that the doctor who did it put everything in backwards, like they put his cowlick in the front or something. Now tell me, is that even something that's possible? I don't really waste much of my time trying to figure out our president's hairdo. But... <laughs> I do. I do. I can tell you I do. <laughs> I think what, what he may have had done was something called a flap. What you're saying is a little bit, kind of what you're saying, but where you take the hair from the back and actually rotate the whole flap, it's considered a flap of the hair into the front. So you get this swoop of hair and it's very thick because it was in the back or on the sides and you just relocate that to the front. Maybe somebody said the cowlick that was in the back is in the front. That may have been the procedure that he had done. I'm not quite sure, but that's possible. Well, that gives me some closure. I'm still not to the bottom of my research (laughs) on this, but it gives me some closure. I'm not going to make political comments. (laughs) (laughs) You find out, you let me know. I will. <laughs> Me 
too. This is yes. probably going to be our most listened to podcast because yes. everybody's going to want to know. <laughs> how, how did he get that hair? <laughs> exactly. um, so JB, you're responsible for opening this can yes, of worms. Now I know, we're all right? money to know. So I know. <laughs> but it, it is so true to his point, you know, Dr. Ken, who we've had on before, and mm -hmm. I've been privy to actually watch the video, the recording of his own personal transplant. He talked about how he looks at the hairline as he would a forest. There's always a certain amount of brush and undergrowth before you get to the tall trees in the forest. And it was a perfect analogy. Well, you know, it's interesting because in the evolution of hair transplantation, hair restoration, these procedures like flaps where you could move a large mass of hair from the side of the back of the head and kind of rotate it to the front. Then they used to do things called MPRs, which were male pattern reductions, where if you had a guy with a lot of hair loss in the front, you would make an incision, remove tissue, and then bring the edges together. Um, so that was some of the earlier things. But now that we, we've gotten individual mi micro follicular unit grafting to such a perfected stage, mm -hmm. we don't really do those things anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. now, like I said, the micro follicular unit uh, transplanting that we do, where we move individual hairs to the areas that need to be uh, addressed. Is there anybody that you can't do a transplant on? I mean, if somebody has been shiny bald for right. 30 years, I mean, is there people that shiny aren't a candidate? Bald. Yeah, shiny bald for 30 years doesn't matter. You know, it's a supply-demand issue in that there's only so much supply back there for you know, escalating demand. I, I always tell people that, you know, you can see somebody that's completely bald, but they still have that hair around the sides and the back. Mm -hmm. That's the basis of this procedure. That's what we call the safe donor zone. We know that that hair, for whatever evolutionary reason is that it is, that hair is protected from the effects of the genetics and hormones that cause hair loss. So we know we can move that hair to other areas and it's going to be permanent. And that's the basis of this procedure. However, there's only so much you can do. I mean, if you think about it intuitively, there's only so much supply back there. And that supply, I tell people, is kind of like a bank where you can only make withdrawals. You mm -hmm. can't make deposits and you own an interest. So if you have you know, 4,000 available hairs back there and you take out 2,000, so there's going to be 2,000 left or you know, maybe even a little bit less than that. Sure. But nonetheless, we can still do some meaningful things with guys like the shiny bald. We can restore the hairline or give them some hair in the front, which really, it changes their appearance and they can always grow that hair back. So usually there's options we can make. It's just, it really also depends upon the patient's expectations and what they want to accomplish. But there are some that don't have adequate donor and they just aren't candidates. But most people are a candidate for at least some form of restoration. Okay, so here's a question too that I've always wondered. And I'm gonna use my own husband sorry, as, a, as an example, okay? okay? So we were in cosmetology school. We learned about hirsutes, which would be excessive body hair, right? right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Why does it seem that men who have excessive body hair generally are the ones who are suffering from this androgenic alopecia, where it's like, where you're growing it everywhere in places you don't even want it. Why can't it grow on the top? Right. And that's a good question. And I, I don't know the exact answer to that, but I think it has to do with the effects of, of the hormones on the body and the receptors for the body hair, which can be a little bit different than the receptors from the scalp hair. But it is kind of God's cruel trick or whoever's <laughs> cruel trick that, uh, you know, there's hair everywhere, ears, back, chest, nose, but not on the top of the head. You can transplant that hair. Now, we don't do that here because quite honestly, it's extremely labor intensive and the results are a little bit suboptimal. But that hair can be transplanted. There are some situations and cases where that is advantageous, where 
guys just want some sort of hair up there. Not that it necessarily grows into beautiful long locks, but some kind of little filler and that might be applicable, but it's, that's not a widespread practice, but it can be done. It can be done. I've never heard of that. Yeah. I, I hadn't either. So, and I'm just thinking that hair visibly, when I look at it, it usually is a little bit thicker. And so you said the, the labor intensiveness of that. So, but it's also, yeah. so that's good. As, as I said, kind of filler hair, but you see chest hair and back hair and leg hair. It's of a thinner quality and it typically doesn't grow long and with the same quality as scalp hair. But if it's, as I said, just kind of a filler where it's short and it's just giving the appearance of some hair can be an option for certain cases. Mm-hmm. Do you find most people have reasonable expectations when they I do come in? I, mm-hmm. I think most people have reasonable expectations and then they meet with our counselors who are excellent at also tempering those expectations. And I think by the time they are finished speaking with us, they're on board and, and understanding. You know, like anywhere else, we want to under-promise and over-deliver. But I, I do, I think most people have reasonable expectations. Now, how many surgeries would you say you typically do in a 12-month period? Me personally or Bosley? Well, both. Let's go okay. there. That's a good question. So I'd say for myself, uh, you know, over the years, I've, I've done between, you know, five and 600 uh, a year. You know, that can be anywhere from 40, 50 or more a month. Uh, I've had months where I've done 70 or 80 cases. There's other practices that aren't quite as busy and maybe do a smaller number of that just based on the catch basin and what you know, where they are geographically. But mm-hmm. as a group, we do almost uh, almost 10,000 cases a year. It's yeah. incredible. It's been so developed and that artistic element has been brought into it. I think there's a lot of people that don't know when people have had it done. And I yeah. think even as a hairstylist, I used to have an eye for that kind of thing. Now it's the technology well, has gone to such a higher level. So that's impressive. Well, Dr. Bosley uh, used to have a, a saying, he used to say, do you know how you can notice a good hair transplant? You can't. You can't. <laughs> yeah. if, it's, if it's that good, you won't know. You know, that's what we're always aiming for and striving for. That's wow. extremely encouraging that there's that many just from the Bosley clinics that have happened. So that obviously a fraction of the people that, that need it. And it's in great demand right now. People are around. They have some time off. And I also think a lot of people have been sitting around seeing themselves on Zoom and saying, hey, I, I could use a little bit of hair there and there. And so, <laughs> We are definitely seeing ourselves on a lot of camera time. That's for sure. So, yeah. and by the way, your hair looks terrific. Thank you. And I won't ask, but it does look very, very good. You, your guy's hair looks great too. We kind of have this uh, product line that we like and we educate for that we believe in. So, yes. <laughs> that looks great. Both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I make sure I take my, my supplements every day on on top of doing the scalp treatments. Discussing that, um, I would say our practice, well, my practice here, and probably nationwide, women is are about, comprise about, I would say 10% of the practice. Really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, because it. I would say for for me, it's about eighty five percent of my clientele is women. But you know, but in the same token. I can see and help them head off the path of what I can see in the future happening with right. hair loss due to, you know, the innumerable reasons that women go through hair loss, whether it's hormonal, stress, diet, right. whatever. One of the surprising things I learned over the years is how long-term antibiotic use can also cause hair loss. And I've seen it in one of my guests. What actually are the antibiotics doing that is causing the hair loss? You know, it's unclear because you think that that would be counterintuitive because 
antibiotics will cut down uh, inflammation sometimes. I mean, obviously an infection, but sometimes inflammation. Mm. But it might be that they're wiping out some of the microflora that are favorable for the growth of the follicle. A lot of our therapies are, are now directed towards, the, the, as I said, the microenvironment of where the follicle lives. So we have a lot of directed therapies towards inflammation and cutting down on the inflammation in that microenvironment where the follicle resides just a few millimeters beneath the level of the skin. It's all very interesting. And for a woman, hair growth is really kind of a balancing act, especially as we mature over the age of 35. So with your typical female, the 10% you were referring to, what is the typical age range for the those, those females. So, and I'd say the 10% is probably of our surgical candidates. The number of women that we see is higher than that, but of surgical candidates. Okay. Uh, we see them all over, but I'd say the average age is in the 30s, you know, the women that we're seeing, I would say 30s. Now, see, that surprises me. I would have thought for sure that it would have been late 40s, 50s. So the 30-year-old, really. So what are their challenges? A, a lot of them are, as I said, this is a genetic pattern. You know, we see a lot of different ethnicities that inherently have these genetic patterns where they get a very diffuse thinning hair loss pattern on the top of the head. And, you know, these are sometimes patterns that they've had since uh, early 20s. So I'd say, you know, late 30s, early 40s, not not the younger 30s, but late 30s. Sure. But, you know, we see ages all over, but we clearly see it starting early in men and uh, we see it, you know, right after pubescence, right after, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the hormone surge, we can see kids as young as 15 or 16 sometimes coming in, or we see them in their early 20s. And when you query them, they'll say, oh, my hair loss started three or four years ago, which was like when Mm -hmm. they were 16. Women's hair loss is a lot more difficult to deal with because women typically lose it, as I said, in a diffuse pattern where they keep the hairline in sort of the perimeter but start to lose it uh, in between. Men typically, when they lose it, they lose the whole hairline and it recedes back and they start to lose it on the crown and that moves forward and then it coalesces. Women typically keep their hairline, but tend to thin behind that, almost like the hairs are getting further and further apart. Mm-hmm. And those can be very difficult to deal with just on the fact that you have to go in between the hairs, that it's just technically a more difficult problem. And sometimes that hair loss extends into the donor area for women also. So you have to be careful Mm -hmm. with a macroscope and make sure that that hair loss doesn't involve the donor area too, because otherwise it won't be as long lived as the donor area that's protected. I see that a lot with women too. It's that diffused thinning and Mm -hmm. it gets thin like almost all the way down. So to Mm -hmm. your point, if the the donor area isn't fruitful, then you don't have as much, you know, to transplant. So do people have to get more than one transplant then? Or do women have to get it more than men or... Every person that comes through the practice here, when I write them a plan, we give them a plan, you know, sort of a range, like we recommend 800 to 1200 grafts, you know, kind of a a minimum and the most that we think we can do in a session. I always tell them that that's per procedure and that two or more procedures may be desired simply for two reasons. One, there's only so close together that we can get these grafts in a given time. Uh, Otherwise, sometimes the grafts outstrip their blood supply and the carrying capacity of the scalp and they they don't grow. So you want to make sure that properly so that they grow. So some people will then come back so that we can get them a little bit closer together and get it a little bit denser or another area starts to thin. So it's not this kind of one and done type of thing. Mm -hmm. Hair loss is progressive. It continues, particularly if they're not using adjuncts to halt the progression of hair loss. So all of our patients know that there might be a possibility of doing another one. And I'd say that most of our patients, meaning over 50%, do come back and do another procedure or procedures, sometimes within a year, sometimes you don't see them back for 10 or 20 years. I have been told that hair loss actually begins 10 years prior internally before you see it actually come to fruition on the scalp. 
I don't know that you can necessarily put a number on it 10 years, but what I can tell you is for the most part, the hair loss has been there a lot longer than people notice. You know, we'll get some guys that come in that are nearly bald and I'll ask them, when did you first notice your hair loss? And they'll say, well, you know, within the last year or two. And, you know, unless they had some sort of medical condition where they lost it, it's unlikely. But typically you don't see hair loss in an area until about 50% is gone. So I don't know if I can say 10 years, but typically it's been going on for much longer than most people Mm -hmm. think. That makes sense because how many men look at the back of their hair every day before they walk out and examine, you know, a very common area where they're going to lose it. It's not until they look back there or see a picture of themselves on Facebook and they're like, what the heck? (laughs) Why didn't anybody tell me? (laughs) You're absolutely right. No, that's that's exactly what happens. But again, I can't say it's necessarily 10 years, but I would say most people, it's for sure years before they notice yeah. it. Yeah. Or their hair starts to miniaturize before right. they start right. getting the patchy right. baldness. So their right. hair just starts getting thinner before it starts balding. So, right. so the majority of people that we see, the hair loss is what we just call that miniaturization process where you start off with a nice thick hair and it progressively gets thinner and thinner and thinner until it really doesn't have much of a cosmetic or a visible impact, as opposed to where you're just losing hundreds and hundreds of hairs a day. You can lose up to 100 hairs a day. That's not unusual. And those are hairs that will grow back. But if you're losing hundreds and hundreds of hairs a day, then that's something that you do need to have a medical evaluation for because there's Mm -hmm. probably something else that's causing that other than that garden variety male pattern baldness or androgenetic alopecia that I mentioned before. We do have some questions coming in. And one of the questions asked is, when should I make that call and go have a consultation at a transplant surgery center. At what point in time? I mean, if I'm just thinking I, I might be losing it, or I know for sure. What what's when's a good time to come in and just check? Hey, do I need to stay on top of this? What do I need to do? Uh, right after you finish listening to this podcast. If you have a question or you're concerned about it, make the call now. Yeah. You already know the answer if you're asking the question, really. Right. You know, obviously, when I see a person for the first time, if it's not an obvious loss, you know, where they might say, you know, doc, it feels just to me like there's less volume, it's getting thinner, probably that's what's going on. But I'm seeing them at point A, I have not seen them before. Those are, I'm just talking about very early stage people, Mm -hmm. more than likely, if they're experiencing that, then that's been going on. And I'll tell those people, well, probably get them on some preventative treatment, take photos for the next three to six months, we can follow it. In answer to your question, if you're concerned about it, this is the time to look into it. Now, how many times will they come in before they actually pull the trigger? You know, it's all over the place. We once mm-hmm. looked at a number of patients and it was like five years or more from when somebody you know, said, oh, I need to do something to when they actually did a procedure. We have people that come in five to 10 times before they do something. I'd say typically several times. It's a process. Maybe they'll look at the website. They'll get some information. Then they'll have a consultation with one of our counselors and then maybe come in and meet the doctor. So it might be two or three times before they actually do the procedure. But then we have plenty of others who just, you know, do it right away. They say, I'm, I'm ready to do it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know what the process is. I'm going to schedule and, and then come and talk to a doctor to find out how many graphs I need or what I need. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the decision is already made before they get there. They just need to know, okay, now what do I need to do next? So, yeah. All right. That's super encouraging. Mm-hmm. I am very encouraged because I do get asked a lot of questions with clients and guests. It's, I think sometimes they're looking to their stylist to say, you know what, make that call and go see what your options are. And we were talking 
earlier to one of the Bosley doctors, and we were both shocked at the recovery time. It was much less than what we expected. Mm -hmm. So they were talking that um, maybe don't plan any social events for four weeks, and then beyond that, allow for a full year if you want complete recovery. But I was really surprised after four weeks that they could probably be out in public and do that type of thing, depending on, of course, the client. But I thought that was great. I figured it'd be three to four months. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I mean, again, depending upon the client... depending mm-hmm. on the characteristics like skin tone, skin color. People are back out in, in a week or two. People are back out. Wow. So typically, <laughs> we have them off one week from heavy exercise because we don't want them to jeopardize or damage the grafts. If you have a strip removal where there's stitches, they need to have the stitches removed in about 10 days. If you have the FUE or follicular unit excision where we take them out one at a time, there's no stitches to remove. But for either one of those methods, we still don't want heavy activity for one week. But as far as integrating back into, it really depends upon what you're comfortable with. If you have an FUE, your hair is cut down really short and you have these little dots, usually by about a week or so, the hair is grown to such a length that it just looks like you got a very short haircut. But yeah, within a couple of weeks, usually you can be right back out there. That's amazing. That's so exciting. Listeners are going to be so excited to hear that. And I'm sure a lot of them are going to pick the phone and call and check in to see what options they were because a lot of them, they're listening to this podcast because they don't know what their options are. So they want to be able to learn. So There are a lot of options now. So under the kind of umbrella of hair restoration is hair transplantation and then maintenance. So really the only way to get more hair or significantly more hair is with a transplant. But you also want to maintain what you have because many people come in and they have, still have a lot of hair. You don't want to transplant and move a couple of thousand grafts, but lose thousands of your untransplanted hairs. You want to augment that result. So it's super important under that umbrella with the transplant to also do whatever you can to maintain the hair that you have. Now, there's plenty of people that come in with a lot of hair who feel like they might be losing, and then their options and solution is to maintain what they have. Mm-hmm. That's, those are through products like Propecia or Finasteride and Prodane or Minoxidil, PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma, things like that. Those are all different medical adjuncts that help maintain the hair uh, that you have. So there's a lot of different options out there. Very, very good point. I mean, it's it's not a one and done. I mean, you do have to take care of yourself and that hair after you've had mm-hmm. surgery. So, and I know we get asked a lot as hairstylists, you know, what should I be doing? And yes, clean follicle site and proper shampoos and conditioners and supplementation. And um, you know, there's a lot to going into maintaining that new healthy hair. Sure. Laser therapy is another therapy that's ex- extremely important and has been gaining a lot of traction over the years because the lasers have become more efficient. We have studies to show their efficacy. You know, people say when, for example, with Rogaine, which you rub into the scalp once or twice a day, people say, oh, you know, it's a bit of a pain in the butt to do. But you have to think about this like a skincare routine. People put moisturizer and skincare products on every day. This is the same type of thing. You know, the uh, hair is just an extension of your skin. You know, you have to take Mm -hmm. care of that too. So just like anything else, you get into your routine and the maintenance products and adjuncts are going to work only as long as you use them. That's a question we get all the time is, oh, once I stop using, or am I going to lose everything? Using those products is kind of like putting a pause button on it. It'll stop the progression of hair loss. But if you stop using them, then the hair loss will just continue as it did before because you're not doing anything to prevent it. Just like any other illness that may occur in the body, whether it's diabetes, high cholesterol, whatever, you have to maintain a certain diet and possible medication and exercise in order to keep it at bay. Absolutely. 100% correct. I was going to mention for women, well, for, for both, but but even more so with women, because sometimes their patterns are very difficult to deal with. What's really been 
uh, of benefit over the last few years is something called scalp micropigmentation or SMP, which is like tattooing. It's yes. a little bit different than tattooing because it's a little bit less deep in the skin and it's an organic pigment rather than a dye. But the premise of that is, is we make tiny little dots on the scalp, gives the appearance of like a freshly cut hair and cross section. And it takes away the contrast of the scalp from the hair of the surrounding hair. So it almost looks like there's more hair in that area. It's a cosmetic fix. Some women and men use fibers. I'm sure you're familiar with that keratin mm-hmm. fibers topic. Mm-hmm. Somebody had mentioned before, yep. this is more like a permanent version of that. And for some women that have, you know, mild hair loss, but just need a little something, scalp micropigmentation is an excellent solution, you know, alternative as well as for men too. Well, we're already doing that with the eyebrows. Correct. Yeah. So you guys are doing mm-hmm. microblading. This is yep. a tiny little bit different, but it's the same principle, same theory. Yeah. And done properly and in the right patient really has great results. Wow. So many options. I know. Who knew? (laughs) So many options. So I love that. I can understand that too because I think, you know, as women, we understand microblading, but whoever thought to do that for hairlines? Right. Exactly. Where you're kind of just. Oh, so we just, you were talking about the, you know, the new options and everything that are available. Mm -hmm. And JB and I were just kind of stunned because we, Mm -hmm. we don't know about all these options, even though we should. And it's great to be able to refer somebody to one of the clinics that they can get some of these procedures. So what about uh, scarring? If somebody has scarring alopecia or if they've got spot where they had something, can you do a transplant on a spot like that? Or that's a really good question. There's a lot, there's a little bit of debate in the field of hair restoration about that. In general, scarring alopecias, and what, what you mean by scarring alopecias, these are, this is hair loss due to inf- severe inflammation of the scalp. This is not the androgenetic stuff that we were talking about before. This is an organic pathologic process going on that causes destruction of the hair follicles. In general, inflammatory or scarring alopecias are not amenable to uh, hair restoration. However, there are some surgeons and there are some studies out that say that if that's a process that's quote unquote burnt out, meaning, you know, more than say 10 years old and there's no active inflammation going on by biopsy, then perhaps those patients could benefit. But there's, you know, there's not a tremendous um, wealth of uh, examples out there of where that works very well. But it, you know, it can be offered and with the caveat that we might do the procedure and these grafts might not survive, you know, because Mm -hmm. of the inflammatory milieu, but Mm -hmm. that's, you know, you have to have a a long conversation with the patient. In typical, the little ones, the alopecia areata, sometimes you see people that have these coin-sized areas of hair loss that, you know, come and go, they exacerbate and then remit. Those typically aren't candidates either because we don't know when that's going to pop up and destroy Mm -hmm. the transplanted hair. However, again, you can build a case for if it's chronic and if a biopsy is done and there's no active inflammation that you could try to do a procedure again with a conversation. We've been seeing also in the literature some reasonable results with PRP or platelet-rich plasma for some of these scarring alopecias. Mm-hmm. Again, you're not going to get a dramatic result. It's not like if all the hair is lost, it's going to grow back, but it might add some little benefit. Camouflaging or of sorts. Mostly just confidence boosting, probably. Possibly. But typically we'll, in our practice, if a patient comes in and there's a suspicion of one of these inflammatory alopecias, I'll typically send them out to a dermatologist um, Mm -hmm. where they'll do a biopsy and they might take over their care because that might involve steroid injections or some other interventions that are 
a little bit beyond the scope of what we do. Now, do you typically work hand in hand with dermatology a lot? Yes, we do. So, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth. So dermatologists will see patients that come in because of hair loss, that's run of the mill stuff, and they'll send them over here and vice versa. We'll see mm-hmm. some pathology where we send them to the dermatologist. So we do have a nice working relationship with the uh, dermatology uh, community. Doctor, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know they should know about, you know, preventing hair loss or addressing hair loss or? I think, as I said, the most important things are there's a lot of different adjuncts out there for preventing hair loss. And that's super important because you want to hold on to what you have. As far as getting more hair back, transplantation is the way to go. And to there, there might be a little bit of confusion of people always saying, oh, I want to do the the newest, the latest, and the greatest. And so the most recent, it's been around for about 20 years, but what's gained a lot of traction and popularity over the, you know, in particular the last 10 years for transplantation is what's called the FUE or follicular unit excision, as opposed to the strip, meaning the strip is where we actually cut a strip of tissue out. You know, it's about a a quarter to a half inch wide by, it depends upon the length, you know, it could be from Mm -hmm. your shorter, depending upon the number of grafts. And then we sew that back up. You know, there's a lot of horror stories. People see things on the internet and they see these horrible scars and everything else. But if it's done properly, which is what we do here, we can leave patients with beautiful scars on the back of the head to where they might have their hair almost like a crew cut and you can't even see them. It can be a little bit more painful. You know, there's some discomfort for a few days. We give some pain medication for that. Excellent results. And that's the tried and true. And that's the the method that's still in our practice. Probably it's about 60, 40 strip FUE, but FUE is getting more and more popular. The FUE or follicular unit excision is where we take them out one at a time. Two major benefits of that. One, it does not leave a linear scar. So you can wear your hair shorter, have the flexibility of that, and not even worry about there being a scar. And two, typically it's minimal discomfort. It seems like it would be much more labor intensive though, one by one. It is. It is for sure more labor intensive. And there's there's definitely a learning curve on that, but we're well beyond that. And, you know, we we have capacity and skills to really, to do that, but it it definitely is more labor intensive question. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the results are equivalent. When we first started doing them, maybe 10 years ago, just like anything else, when you're starting off, it lags behind your, your standard methods. But I'd say at this point, the the results are, are equivalent. You know, so that's one of the things. Then there are emerging therapies. You know, probably the, the future of hair transplantation and hair restoration will be in the um, micromolecular level cloning, where we could either take a sample of your hair for if there's limited donor supply, we take a sample of your hair, send it to the lab, and you know, clone ten thousand of your hairs, and then we put them back in your head. So if you don't have a good donor supply, we'll have an unlimited supply. Or if we can reinvigorate with stem cells, the follicles, you know, the quote unquote machinery of hair that are there and that are not producing. So those are probably, that's where the future is headed for hair restoration. But in the meantime, we do a great job with the transplantation with both of those methods. I just mentioned the adjuncts, Propecia, Rogaine or Minoxidil, low level laser therapy, the the laser caps now, and uh, PRP or platelet rich plasma really do a very nice job for uh, helping to maintain. Lots of options out there. Mm-hmm. And thank you for that mm-hmm. glimpse into the future. Yes. I mean, that sounds fascinating about what's coming here in possibly the very near future. But right now, I mean, there's definitely a finesse and an artistic ability that I learned today, you know, when it mm-hmm. comes to that uh, that transplant surgery. So you definitely want to, to go to somebody that's got a lot of experience and, mm-hmm. and specializes in it. So, so definitely, if you that little voice on the shoulder is saying, hmm, 
should I call? Should I not call? Mm -hmm. Dr. Deutsch says definitely call. If you have any question at all, check out what your options are. Yeah, you've got nothing to lose. I mean, at least look at the website. You, our consultations are all free. You'll get a lot of information. Uh, the worst case scenarios will say, look, you've got a ton of hair, nothing to do now. But, you know, typically if people are concerned, uh, there's probably something going on. But, but yeah, pick up the phone and, and, and come in for a consultation and we'll go from there. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for what you're doing for our industry. I My mean, pleasure. this is a big time commitment out of your life. And I know you said you talked about your family and that type of thing, but this is a big commitment. I mean, you're doing a lot of surgeries, so you're helping yeah. a lot of people that are out there. I had no idea that's how many that you're potentially doing in a year. So that's a lot of work. Thank you you guys too in the salons and stylists and everything, because you guys send a lot of people in because you're on the front line there. You see what's going on yeah. and you know, if you're able to broach that, it's a great resource for us. Absolutely. It just increases connectivity all the way around. So absolutely. And thanks to our sponsor, Bosley, as always, we appreciate. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have this podcast. And they also connected us up to the doctors that are on the front lines. And there's just so much out there that can happen and that can be due as, as we learned during this podcast session. So thank you. And thank you, JV, also as well. And uh, gosh, can we, can we circle back around with you, doctor, in about a year from now and find out about some of those new technologies? My pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you'll join us for our next podcast. And be sure to check out all of our past podcasts. For more information about Bosley MD, you'll find us online at bosleymd.com. That's B-O-S-L-E-Y-M-D.com. And of course, all social media. Feel free to send your questions and comments to info at bosleymd.com. Dot com. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>